This is his remote ruby. Have you any remote idea to the meaning of the word? Hello. Yeah. What's up? I think I, have, I either have a gout flare up or carpal tunnel. I don't know. I don't know what gout is. Gout is this cool thing where your body has these little tiny crystals. So when your blood is high in uric acid and these crystals get lodged in your joints or they form in your joints. And it's basically like temporary arthritis, but it's some of the worst pain. I, I've had it for years. It's because of my diet. And this feels like it, but also nobody can really see this, but y'all, but it's like right here between my hands and on my wrists in that joint. And so I think it might be one of the two. So can we address after this? I'll send you a new mouse. Yeah, I got a mouse. It changed my wrist forever. I sent one to my dad for Christmas and he doesn't work in tech and he's I'll never use another mouse again. This would be my keyboard. It's my left hand, uh, right-handed. But I also recently switched when I got my MacBook Pro. I switched to the smaller Magic Keyboard, which is uh, a number pad. And so I'm wondering if I'm act, like angling my wrists more and maybe I should finally bite the bullet and get like an ergonomic keyboard. An ergonomic yeah. keyboard and an ergonomic mouse completely removed all my RSI. Really? Coupled with like trying to be better about inflammation and food, but that got worse when I moved to Arizona. So now I know it's like the mouse and the keyboard. I'm good. I just like the way the keyboard and the trackpad look. But you don't like the way your wrist feels. So <laughs> so that's what I'm just trying to do some napkin math real quick to see which pain is worse. The pain of aesthetic or the pain of wrist. But now I'm like used to this keyboard that has touch ID. So like I have to like type my password in. It's the stone ages. Get out of here. You don't have to use your painful wrist if you have touch ID. So that's right. If you just take the password away, then this problem is gone. Mm. <laughs> that's yeah. what I feel about the database too and the secure connections to Redis on Heroku that's good too don't need those oh you are you're wild you keep me young I started my last my last random bit of BS because you always call me a boomer I set my I, 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 my player I that on 2K one time and you always call me a boomer I set my player's nickname on 2K to be boomer okay so Every time I score, and here's Boomer. There's several things I regret saying to you. Calling you a Boomer one time in my life <laughs> is one of them in a choking manner. And the other was saying that you use the word like a lot. I don't know why you would like. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we should get started, bro. Bruh, bruh, bet. Bruh. Recently, in the past couple of months, we've talked about Phoenix Live View. Phoenix being a web framework for the Elixir programming language. And it's something that I think we're the three of us are like fascinated learning more about. And we try and talk about it and try and learn about it. We don't really get anywhere. So I had someone who we follow each other on Twitter reach out to me and say, Hey, I heard you talking about live view. Would you like to like dig into it? And I was like, yes, yes, yes. So today we are joined by Andreas Erickson and we're just going to chat elixir phoenix live view all the things so thanks for joining us would you mind maybe giving just a, a quick intro yep so i'm an andreas Eriksson. i live in outside of malmo in southern sweden i have been working in a ruby company 
until last year in Copenhagen and commuted over. Recently, I joined Erlang Solutions as an Elixir consultant. So basically, I switched from Ruby to Elixir recently and been fairly happy, or, but I'm still happy with Ruby as well. So it's, uh, I love your podcast and everything like that. I look forward, I will keep doing both. I just want to scale down on the JavaScript side. So that's why live view and, and stuff like that kind of intrigues me a lot. That exact reasoning is why Nate built Simus Reflex and Cable Ready was be like, I'm so sick of writing JavaScript in my Rails app. Phoenix has live view. Let's make something similar in Rails. So yeah, I'm excited to get into this. Yep. I'm curious just to maybe set some context. So you said you were doing Ruby and recently professionally just switched to Elixir. How long have you been writing Ruby code? Probably 10 plus years. So I still write it from on the side projects and stuff like that. I came in around Rails 2.3. Okay, very cool. So you've been with Erlang Solutions as of recent. How long have you been writing Elixir code? Yeah, so we had some services in Elixir. So I would say around four years. Okay. So I kind of switched in between. And LiveView came out around, I think it was late 2018 or early 2019 when they kind of released it publicly, they had announced it. In that Phoenix project I worked on, I switched out a few React components that I had to LiveView almost the first day it was released. So it's, uh, it was very easy to kind of start with. That's great. So I do have some questions for you around Ruby and Elixir and kind of comparing those, but really we could touch base on that towards the end. So we could just yep. dig in kind of with LiveView. So... I'm going to just, they call it a beginner's mindset. I'm going to try and just put away everything I think I know about it and ask you all kinds of questions. So what is Phoenix Live View? Yeah, so, and with that, I want to get a step back and say that Elixir that kind of has sprung up from Erlang and has this library called OTP. And OTP allows you to create what are called gen servers. And a gen server is basically a, tiny process that can hold state and hold state means that as soon as you start your server, you can start X amount of gen servers. You could probably start like millions on a regular server. So you don't need to worry about starting a lot of processes. And these are kind of managed by a supervisor or several supervisors. And you can have like this whole tree with gen services supervisor, but you, you definitely don't need to do that as complex, but anyway, a gen server is basically Let's say it's a Ruby class that you have getters and setters, and that class kind of lives in memory on the server that you kind of run. So you don't need to kind of recreate the world on every web request, for example. And in extension, the live view component is based on a gen server. It's a gen server. So it can hold state. So when a viewer enters a web page that is a live view page, it will kind of have the state. You can load in data, you can track what the user does, kind of handle the click events. And that kind of lives in the current, what would you say, the, the user visit on, on that page. And so this is actually great because gen servers are a thing like I read people talk about and I've never really understood them. So you say essentially like it's a way to hold state on the server. Is it something that multiple processes could come and like reference? Or is it like kind of just tied to one kind of connection so you can do it in, in several ways you can have like named gen servers that will handle for example the connection with the database or you can spin up like 
dynamic web servers with dynamic names that will act more as a worker pool. And since you can supervise them, you can also tell them like what will happen if the service crashes or what will happen as a callback when the service is kind of done as well. So I would say it sounds complex and you don't need to get into it when you start with Elixir or Phoenix. It's abstracted away from you when you work with LiveView, but it's also good to know that it's basically just uh, what is in under the hood. It's an optional, it's conceptual compression, but in a sense, it's the most complex part of Elixir. But when you learn it, you understand like how everything else, like how you would make a web server or or something like that, because there's also kind of uh, dynamic gen servers that kind of spawns up on every page visit, for example. Cool. Even that alone helps take away some of the like mystery. So LiveView itself, if I am building a web app and somebody tells me to use LiveView, what type of problems am I solving by using LiveView? So basically you shouldn't use it unless, or for me, I could say it's if you consider using React or something else that has uh, that you want to do some sort of more interactive UI. React was a good comparison from the start because the live view had like these, basically what's just a component where you can set some initial state, you can render the HTML and you can have these event handlers. So if you render live view and you click on a button and tell it to kind of modify the state on the in the live view, it has like this handle event callback in the live view that says someone click this button, change the UI with this uh, modification or load in some data or save data. So it's very similar to how you consider that React works conceptually. Of course, really how it, because that's JavaScript and, but yeah, you would use it everywhere. You would use like a complex JS framework. I see that there's a way to get the raw JavaScript events with live view i'm assuming that means you can make your own custom events too or is it just respond to the built-in javascript events when you say custom events so if i make a special event happen in my javascript for instance when i yep. click this button instead of a clicked button event it's i don't know the foobar event can i make the elixir aware of that yes but you're talking about actual javascript that is running on the page for example if you have a drag and drop interface or Let's say I drag and drop something in a custom event. So one of the things that came fairly early with the live view is that the concept of live view hooks. For example, you can, as soon as it renders a DOM element, you can attach a live view hook. And conceptually, again, this is more like how you would instantiate a stimulus controller. Okay. So like custom bindings, basically. Yeah, exactly. Like on the DOM element. Yep. And in that hook, you can, for example, launch a JavaScript, as I said, drag and drop or sortable JS or something. And those usually take a callback from when you have sorted the list. And you can use that callback to do a, a WebSocket push event back to live view. So you wouldn't do an Ajax call. Everything will go over WebSockets. So you can use WebSockets or a full request, right, with live view? Actually, everything is on WebSockets. You will do a request. Gotcha. And so one of the things I think that interests me the most about LiveView is how aware it is of everything that's happening on the page, 
because one of the things I've read about is that it can send back these really small change sets, essentially, that are like the only this part of the page should change where like a common thing in like our Ruby based solutions is at the simplest re-rendering the whole page and using something like Morphdom or just replacing divs. How does that work? I can't tell you for sure, but think of it like this. So if you render like a list of 10 items and just to render it, you also have them in memory in the live view process. So if an 11th item comes in and you want to render that one, you don't need to send the other 10. You can just append the last one and it will still hold the entire list on the server, so to say. And in this case, this is where like kind of the gin server comes into play. We're like... It's storing maybe those 10 items. So when you add a new one, it's saying, okay, well, I know there's 10 here already. I'm just going to add another one. So then it can say only send one down to the page, essentially. Yes. That is like magic. Well, kind of magic I don't understand. And I love it. I don't know if they still do, but LiveView for a while was using Morphdom. Yeah, I think they still do. Okay. I haven't heard anything or haven't dug into it. But they have like, of course, their own libraries that kind of abstracts away. So, but I'm fairly sure it's still Morphdom. You had mentioned pretty early on when live you came out, you replaced React components. Are you able to like kind of share maybe what those components were doing and how you were yeah. able to replace that functionality? Yeah, so I had this, and you probably know this. When you do like a dynamic nested form in Rails, for example, and this was the same case in Phoenix, that you kind of need to rendered in you, as soon as you tri- click the button to append one more line, you will still kind of need to render that partial in some way and get it. And I usually went for the Ryan Bates approach with having it as a data attribute, but it kind of also felt weird. So basically it did that the same thing with React instead, because the Ryan Bates approach is kind of good, but it's also kind of all convoluted and it can be hard to find. Anyway, I, I switched to just multi like a React component for this part. So it was very self-contained and, and simple. And it was very easy to kind of switch out to, to live view. I just want to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Honey Badger. They're a single platform for error monitoring, uptime monitoring, and cron monitoring. I've blown away several people because of the real-time error monitoring with Honey Badger. I've caught an error and fixed it before the customer could even email me and say that something was wrong. They get pretty blown away by that experience and it always makes my day. So thanks to Honey Badger for making that even possible. Star Josh and Ben created Honey Badger as a 100% bootstrapped monitoring solution. Without investors breathing down their necks, they can spend all their time making a better product for you, the developer. So check them out at honeybadger.io and let them know you heard about them on remote Ruby. And so what is the the process like? How does it differ the React implementation and the live implementation? Yeah, good question. I think one thing that you would say for sure is if you would do it like that, is that the live view implementation is server-side rendered when the page loads. So there's no JavaScript that can jump in after a millisecond or two. So that is a very positive thing. But besides that, what I did at that time, and uh, remember that this was before everything was kind of settled and the roadmap wasn't that clear, but I kind of mounted the live views in my normal templates, which is still fine and, and you can do that. But the recommended way is to kind of do a 
spa type approach with the entire layout should be like a live view. And when you navigate through the live view pages, it will be not full page refresh, but they will do some sort of approach that Hotwire takes. We're just switching out the main area of the app and keep the header and stuff like that still intact on the page. Are there any things that you've tried to move into Live View that you've been unsuccessful with? Or is there a specific group of things that are like, yeah, Live View isn't great at handling these? Actually, not at this point, because you can do it. Well, I had some tricky thing to solve with. If you know the JS Plumb library, where you can drag, do some sort of mind maps and stuff like that. And it didn't integrate super well. So I kind of had a page that is called a dead view which is, yeah, a non-live view page, basically. And the fairly official name is dead view. And again, you can do this by calling out one of the DOM elements to say that this shouldn't be updated with live view. And then you can mount JavaScript that is the type of JavaScript that want to own the DOM that it kind of inherits. So th- those can be tricky, but to be fair, it's not that much. Mostly, I haven't stumbled upon that many problems. Going back to when you were talking about the approach of like making the entire layout live. So I, I had not heard about this. I've only thought of live view in terms of kind of like components or pages like that. So I guess maybe you can speak to this a little bit, but gin server is, or some, am I using the right term is responsible for loading the state of basically the whole page. Then it is responsible for like swapping out elements. Is memory usage ever a worry there? Because like in Ruby land, I'm like, I would just balloon up. Yeah. So I know, for example, that, that there's this page that was kind of early on, cars.com that used Live View. And I think on their kind of most trafficked pages that had some issues, but they also kind of, if I understand it correctly, and they mentioned this on a, another podcast, that they also get a lot of updates. So for example... What also comes with Phoenix is a PubSub library. And when the live view mounts, you can also listen for PubSub incoming messages from other stuff if you want to. For example, new users created somewhere, or if you make like an online game and something happens and you want to display it on your page. So basically what you can do is flood your live view with a lot of messages, which is not great. But in general, we just use it like a normal app and don't try to do something super fancy with displaying a lot of real-time data. And if the data that you kind of display, for example, if you want to have a live dashboard and just send numbers, then I guess it's fine. Then it would be super hard to kind of flood it. But if you send a lot of data in each kind of payload, then in theory, yes. But there's no apparent risk unless you kind of grow to a large scale. Shifting gears a little bit, you said you work at Erlang Solutions. That is a company like I hear mentioned a lot in the Elixir world, Erlang world. What kind of work do you do for Erlang Solutions? I started in August and only have one client so far. And this is online gaming platform in based out of Tallinn, which do a lot of Elixir. And they also use LiveView, but I actually only worked on some of the Elixir parts, pure Elixir microservices. And what I do is, or what the services do are reading a lot of RabbitMQ data, enrich the data and pass it through to other clients. 
So what I'll kind of do there is because they had some memory issues, I think, or that I need to look at. And it also comes back to kind of the, how you split up these processing to dynamic gen servers so they can be processed in parallel instead of just one at a time and then kind of go to sleep afterwards and uh, give back to memory and not try to live that long. And so there are some concerns when you have like a data rich environment, so to say. You said you're doing Elixir work there. Yep. So as someone with 10 years of experience with Ruby, four years experience with Elixir, it sounds like you like both languages. What are some of the things coming from a Ruby background that attracts you to the Elixir language? So basically, I think I went that route just because I kind of needed to learn something new or want to learn something new. And it seemed at the time, around four years ago, that a lot of Ruby developers went in Elixir. So I kind of just followed that path. And then we had the opportunity to kind of try on my previous job to do a microservice and with a new technology. So we kind of picked Elixir because there were several developers that would be interested in using that. So yeah, kind of worked out great, at least technically. We kind of discarded the service after what time because it didn't work out business-wise. What are some of your favorite things about the Elixir language compared to Ruby? This is fairly easy because it's, for me, I see it as more of a all-in-one package. I don't need to use Redis if I don't want to. And in some cases, of course, you can use it. But how Elixir kind of works is that you can still hold state short-term and also kind of long-term in memory. So, and also they have built in the language a key value store called ETS that could also kind of work as a Redis replacement. And when I switched to Elixir was before LiveView. So I kind of also, and this was a time when WebSockets started to be a real thing that you kind of needed that. And Phoenix also had that out of the box, basically. So it was very easy to kind of also build like a React app with some real-time features just by using the built-in channels, Phoenix channels. Very cool. Well, Chris, Andrew, any other live view, Elixir, Phoenix? Can't think of anything. I mean, it's just making me want to go play with it and try it out and stuff because it seems like a really interesting model for being able to keep track of state in the gen servers like that. And it makes you wonder, like, is there a way that will end up being possible in, in Ruby or something one day? It'd be really cool to have something like that, but... It would be interesting to see like, what are all the underlying architecture decisions you'd have to make in the language to make that possible? I have a question. How is your experience like moving from Ruby to Elixir? I'm kind of glad you asked because people kind of always have this paradigm, object-oriented versus functional programming. But I kind of, in my Ruby programming, I kind of always favor the functional style because it's more clear on what's going on. So I always kind of hated the, the methods that mutates an instance variable in a class, for example, with just with a bang. And I would rather have like x equals x plus five instead of something that kind of just say dot bang and then x is something else. So for me, it wasn't a big transition. And also kind of when Phoenix before LiveView was very Rails inspired. So they had like controllers, they had 
views, which is not really views, but it's the views were helpers and templates were the Rails views. And they had models at that time, but they went away from calling it models. So now it's more schema files. Yeah. So the transition was fairly easy. What would you recommend for someone learning or coming or they've listened to this podcast? They're like, oh, wow, I'm super interested now. But their first stop is going to have to be picking up a little bit of Elixir. So what was your kind of path to learning it? Or what would you suggest? I've never been great at reading books and learn stuff, but there are tons of YouTube videos. So if you're already new Rails and you kind of know that I want to install it and I want to do some sort of scaffold and get something crud-ish and play around with, then just follow the Get Started tutorial on the Phoenix Framework site. I think that is enough. And I also want to say basically two things that you can make this real simple. You can just approach it from a Rails developer standpoint and say, oh, I want to deploy this to Heroku and I want to use Honey Badger and you can still do that. It's totally fine. You don't need to dig into gen servers, but you should know that if you ever want to do something more complex, then you can just, the tool set are there. If you host an Elixir app like on Heroku, you do lose being able to like, I guess the gen servers, right? You lose the ability to like storing memory in the gen server. Yeah. Oh, yep. Yeah. It's a good point because as far as I know, Heroku restarts the dinos every day. So you can't really rely on a state living past one day, for example. And since you don't know when to restart them, you can't really rely on that part. So you would probably always kind of have some sort of seeking it up with Postgres or, or Redis or, or something, if you actually need that state. Erlang and OTP come from the telecom world where they kind of needed to kind of keep track on active telephone calls and, and stuff like that. So make sure there's no disconnection. And most web apps don't have that high uptime. But it's also interesting that Elixir supports like a hot code reload. So you can redeploy and you can just swap up with the gen servers and you can keep track of the state. You can also share state between different physical machines if you connect the nodes together. So there, there are some, but of course then Heroku is probably not what you want to launch on. But if Heroku is your go-to choice since the real stays and you kind of just don't want to learn new platforms to deploy to, then you can still do that. Well, where can people find you on the internet? Are any links you want to share, anything like that? I have my content site. It's called fullstackphoenix.com. I think that they could find my email and Twitter from there. And I'd be glad to answer other, if people have questions regarding this, I, I usually answer them on Twitter and email. And so that's very cool to find if you reach out. I will have to check out fullstackphoenix.com. Well, I appreciate you taking time out of your, what looks like to be evening where you are to join us in. No, I, I appreciate being on podcast. Uh, I followed you uh, uh, several years now. So it's um, super nice what you do. And I really love the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for shedding some light on Phoenix and stuff. So if you end up convincing us, we end up becoming the remote Phoenix podcast here in the future. <laughs> well, all right. Well, good to chat. And thanks again for joining us. We'll talk next week. Later. <laughs>